0: All right, well, good morning, everybody. My name's Maddie. I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy, so if I haven't met you, I'm gonna say hello. I'd love to meet you if we have the opportunity after the service. Uh, say hello to everybody who's watching online today as well. Our, our lead pastor, Adam, is off in Alaska. He's being the hands and feet of Jesus right now on a mission trip out there serving, and I believe he is getting ready to preach there as well. So we're just about lined up at the same time preaching he let us know that he's got his Lumberjack shirt all pressed and ready to go since he's in Alaska, um, making sure he doesn't look too out of place. But, but yeah, so we're, we're praying for them and our other mission teams that are out that are getting ready to go and that have come back. So we're thankful for the opportunity to serve God in that way. But today here, we're gonna continue our sermon series on Proverbs. And the proverb that we're looking at today is 2326. So I wanted to read that one to you. It says, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. That's Proverbs 23, 26. And it's short, just a few words, but like the rest of Scripture, it's deep. There's a lot there, and there's a lot for us to take away this morning. So I came to this proverb through a book that I was reading, and oftentimes the Holy Spirit will move in strange ways, and this is one of those ways. And I was trying to figure out what, what proverb to look at today, and this one really hit me. And it hit me because the author put it in the context of parenting and raising children, so that's very personal to me, obviously. I have, I have small children, and I think that it's gonna be significant for a lot of people here as well, uh, for a lot of the parents in here. But at the same time, I understand another thing. Understand that there will also be a group of people that aren't going to find this quite as profound because either you're not a parent or you're not a parent yet. Um, but never fear because, like I said before, the proverb has a much deeper meaning. And we're going to get into that a little bit later. So I'd ask you just to bear with me as we talk about some of the parenting things. In fact, I'm going to go through the whole idea in reverse order, which I know that's a little bit odd, but um, we're going to start. We're gonna start more on the surface and move to the deeper meaning of it as we go along this morning. So back to the book that I read. It's called The Masculine Mandate, God's Calling to Men and it's by a guy named Richard Phillips and I just wanted to make sure that I'm giving him credit for the initial illustration that we're using here Um, and I have a a big library of books on biblical masculinity because biblical masculinity is a, a topic that really interests me because I think that it's been corrupted in a lot of ways. First of all, people don't really put masculinity in the church together anymore. Um, the church has, has been largely feminized in a lot of ways, so people don't really think about masculinity there. But if they do, then our culture takes it all the way to the other side and they think about the quote unquote toxic masculinity um, the abusive kind of domineering masculinity. And neither one of those are really appropriate for us. So masculinity is one of those things in fatherhood that I I really enjoy digging deeper into. But for the purpose of thinking about this proverb, I wanted to give a hypothetical illustration. But while it's hypothetical, this is probably something that you've heard. And for some of you, this may be something that you've said. Uh, It goes a little bit about, it goes a little bit like this when talking about children. Like, I, I just don't understand what happened. We took our child to church every Sunday, their whole life. We sent them to VBS every summer. We made sure that we picked a church with a great kids program so they'd get that teaching. And when they got older, we made sure that we picked a church that had a great youth group so that somebody was continuing to pour into their life. We even paid a lot of money to send them to the best Christian school that we could find. As they got older, we paid attention to who their friends were, we tried to make sure they didn't hang out with anybody bad, yet this still happened. And this can be whatever kind of negative thing that comes to mind, whether it's happened to you or whether you've heard it. Maybe we're talking about a young person that got pregnant. Maybe you're talking about a young person that got somebody pregnant, or got involved in drugs or alcohol, or maybe we're talking about a child who they left the house and also left the faith at the same time. Or we can take it in a different direction for the dads and the husbands in here. This is also something that you may have heard or you may have said to yourself. I just don't understand what's going on. I work hard. I pay the bills. I put a roof over my family's head. I make sure they have all the things that they need. But my marriage is still rocky. My wife still doesn't seem to love me or she doesn't seem to appreciate it. And my relationship with my kids isn't great either. So let's go back to our proverb, 23, 26, again. Solomon writes, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. We'll get into a little bit of background on this proverb in this section of the book. So this particular, your heart, and let your eyes observe my ways. What's the purpose of the first person language? And why is Solomon asking for his son's heart? Well, I think there's two reasons. The first reason is that this, this proverb is an urgent plea for attention. And this is because the lessons that he's gonna talk about later, like immediately after this, are extremely important. Uh, one commentator that I looked at said this. He said, some lessons can be learned with relatively little risk of serious damage. But the couple of verses that follow this don't fall into that category. These are not lessons that can be learned with just a little bit of damage. Um, Solomon goes on immediately to warn about the dangers of the adulterous woman. And this is a theme that showed up in Proverbs a lot, attesting to the danger of such an activity, right? And the adulterous woman, again, it pops up at the beginning of Proverbs and throughout Proverbs a lot. And while that's not what we're talking about specifically today, I wanna put this out there just a little bit and move on quickly. But We're fond of calling out sexual sin, right? Especially in church. But particularly when it's a kind that we're comfortable calling out. And hopefully this is one as well, because adultery or dishonoring the marriage vows that you made before God, sex outside of marriage, is way up there at the top of the list of sexual sin. How severe is this? Just as one example in the New Testament, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. He's saying they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But at the time when this was written, the people that were reading it would have understood this verse out of Deuteronomy, out of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 22 22 says if a man is found lying with the wife of another man both of them shall die the man who lay with the woman and the woman so you shall purge the evil from Israel believe it or not this was actually revolutionary in this time as well because in those old testament days men were expected to be able to do whatever they wanted they were expected to have sexual relations outside of their marriage with any variety of people. So Christianity was coming in and teaching things that were quite revolutionary. So the idea that this is dangerous is something that Solomon really had to, really had to get across to his son or to whoever whoever was reading this. Um, And the, the point of all this is again, he's trying to grab his son's attention because this is a matter of life and death, as we see from Deuteronomy 22:22, So that's the first reason. He uses this wording because it's an urgent plea for attention, but the second reason has to do with symbolic cultural significance of the heart, because you notice that we, he's asking for his son's heart. So commentator Bruce Waltke said this, heart is the most important anthropological term in the Old Testament, but the English language has no equivalent. It occurs 46 times in Proverbs and 858 times in the Old Testament. He also said, the ancients attributed the body's functions to the heart. The heart in biblical anthropology controls the body, its facial expressions, its tongue, and all its other members. And one last quote just to to drive this home. He said, no other English word combines the complex interplay of intellect, sensibility, and will. So, we talk about the heart in our society. We have this all over the place, right? But in the context of the Old Testament, it has a much deeper meaning and a much broader meaning. Um, so, it's no small matter for Solomon to request that his son give him his heart. Early in, earlier in Proverbs, the heart makes two of its other 45 appearances. If we check out Proverbs 4 20 through 22, this says, My son, Be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings, let them not escape from your sight, keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. And when we look at Proverbs 4.23, we see this. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So again, The heart is seen as controlling everything. It controls not only the physical parts of your body, the physical aspects of your body, but it controls the spiritual aspects as well. Uh, One more thing, when writing about Proverbs 4.23, the author says, since the heart is the center of all of a person's emotional, intellectual, religious, moral activity, it must be guarded above all things. So once again, I know we're sort of hammering this point, right? But given the context and the Old Testament view of what the heart actually is, and really how different it is from the way we look at it now, it makes it even more significant that Solomon is writing this way to his son. My son, give me your heart. Because this is a serious commitment. It goes beyond just listening to what he's gonna say next. This is giving of one's undivided attention the undivided essence of who he is to another person. And when something is deadly serious, deadly serious in the way that he's getting ready to explain, that's what you have to ask for. And that's what has to be given. So with that background, let's take this back to the hypothetical example from earlier, right? The one that we started out with. So if you recall, we were listening to the hypothetical parent of a child who somehow lost their way, who strayed from the path of wisdom that's here. And the parent can't make sense of what's happened. The parent's distraught. They thought that they checked all the boxes that they needed to. Church, check. Activities, check. Christian education, check. The right friends, check. But somehow it still didn't work. Why didn't it work? Before I go into this, I will make a small disclaimer because I understand that sometimes people just do stuff, right? Kids grow up, they start making adult decisions even when they're not adults yet. And as parents or anybody else, we don't really have control. You can't necessarily make them behave a certain way. You can't make them feel a certain thing. But it all comes back to the heart. And it all comes back to that Old Testament understanding of the heart. But we're not necessarily talking about the child's heart right now. Parents, this time, I want you to consider your own heart. So I make some assumptions when we're doing this, right? Because we're all here. We're all in this room together, we're all in a church. You don't have to be here. You could be doing just about anything else today, but you've chosen to come to church. And I assume that's because you consider yourself a Christian. And as a Christian and a parent, we know there's certain things that we want for our children, right? We want them to grow up. We want them to be productive members of society, to have a good life. But everybody wants that. More important, as a Christian, we want our children to grow up and have a relationship with Christ that continues through their whole life. So in order to help get them there, you're going to do the things that make logical sense in your head to get them to that place, right? You're going to give them stuff. I'm not talking about material things. I'm not talking about toys or vehicles or whatever um, that gets them spoiled, but you're going to give them things. You're going to give them an education, maybe even a Christian education. You're going to give them the opportunity to grow up in church. But there's a problem with that. And the problem is, unless you're very intentional about the way you go about doing this, those check boxes, those things that you're doing, they may not ever reach your child's heart. They might reach their behavior. They'll do the things that they know they're supposed to do, but only so they don't get in trouble. But as Richard Phillips, the guy who wrote the book I talked about earlier, says, Solomon didn't write, my son, give me your behavior. He wrote, my son, give me your heart. And I said, we can't make people do anything. But sometimes you can, right? If you get mad enough or you take something away, you can make your kids do something. You can make them adjust their behavior. But again, that's not reaching their heart, right? You're basically training obedience here. You're not training or shaping their heart. And I know this is a little bit weird, but one of my favorite verses is Jeremiah seventeen nine. I like to bring up this verse when people say stuff about following your heart or some other kind of, you know, fluffy nonsense that's not really in the Bible, but the kind of thing that we like to say so that we can justify doing something that we know we shouldn't do just because we want to and kind of make it feel like God appreciates it. Jeremiah seventeen nine says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? That's the New King James translation. Uh, The ESV says desperately sick, but I prefer the term desperately wicked because I think it, it tells us a little bit more about that. And this is the condition of the heart before salvation. And this is the condition of the hearts of some of our kids, right, before they've been saved. And to some extent, I get how hard it can be with kids, right? I have a five-year-old daughter. Some of you know her. Some of you have worked with her or taught her. And she is the sweetest little girl, unless she decides not to be. And when she decides not to be, I would say that she's quite possibly the most stubborn person in our house. And that's saying a lot, given some of the people that we have in our house, me included. So, You know We're still working on this stuff, it's still hard. We're still trying to figure out, Amy and I, how to shape her heart and not just her behavior. But we're not done yet, right? We have to take this concept one step further. But to do that, we're gonna take a step backwards because this is something that has to come first. All the things that you're doing for your child, the only way you can genuinely ask your child to give you their heart as if you've shown them that you have sincerely given them your heart. This goes for all parents, but I'm gonna say this especially to the fathers in the room because more often than not, it's easier, or if not easier, maybe it's a little more natural for moms to be open with their hearts, especially for children. But if you're a dad, you're the one that sets the spiritual tone in your house. And if you're leaving that to your wife, that's something that you have to change. You, you won't be able to shape your child's heart if you aren't giving that to them and you're leaving it to your wife to do all the spiritual stuff. And I get it. Like I know that a lot of you carry a huge load particularly if you're the main one that provides for your family. And that's because you probably have to go out into a world where opening up your heart to others will just get you taken advantage of or made fun of or told that you're not a real man. But you can't bring that home to your children. You can't bring that home to your family. It's not enough for any parent father father or mother, to just pay for things and hope for the best. You have to reach their heart. And in order to reach the heart of your child, they have to know that you've given them your heart as well. But that doesn't just go for children. That goes for your marriage too. Men, you have to be sure that you've given your heart to your wife first. And I know this is a struggle too. I like to think that if you asked my wife, she wouldn't just completely throw me under the bus and be like, yeah, he's terrible at this. But if you pressed her hard enough and she was being honest, I know. I know that she would tell you that there's times that I'm hard to reach. I can be a closed book, I can shut everything off. I am not giving my heart, but I know that I need to. And I know that some of you can probably sympathize with that for being the same way. But you can't live that way, and you can't have a marriage that way. And dads, you can't shepherd the family that God has blessed you with that way. I also wanna say that even if you've been saved, if you've been walking with Christ for a long time, this is still something that's gonna happen. The sinful nature of our hearts is going to to bring this forward, but it's up to us to fight against it. I had that conversation with someone after the first service. Salvation doesn't solve these kind of worldly problems on its own, so just be aware of that. Uh, Just because you struggle doesn't mean that you're not saved. But you still have the responsibility to shepherd your family. And we talk about pastors being shepherds all the time, shepherding a congregation. But when it comes to your family, you are that shepherd, or maybe someday you're going to be that shepherd. You're responsible and to properly shepherd the hearts of your family, they have to know that they have your heart. And again, I know that some of you aren't fathers, uh, but this is important and we're gonna get to something else that's even more important for you, no matter who you are. But why am I hammering this home for men and dads, right? Because this applies to women too, doesn't it? Yeah, of course it does. But here's the thing, a minute ago I said that men set the spiritual tone for their family, right? the idea of raising children to have a healthy relationship with God, I wanna show you this graphic that I ran across. This is like mind-blowing. This references a study, and it gives you a real easy way to visualize this, that showed that when the father in a household comes to Christ first, families will follow 93% of the time. And that, if you look at that graph, there's such a huge gap between when mom comes to Christ first or when a child comes to Christ first. And that's not to discount the importance of any of those things because those things are extremely important Um, because mothers are are instructed in scripture to, to continue to be holy even if they're married to someone who's not a Christian. So we don't ever wanna downplay the importance of other family members. But when it comes to everyone having a relationship with Christ, dad can lift up the family or he can sink it. And the reason for that is when it's only mom or only the kids who find this to be important and not dad, eventually everybody starts to look at church and they start to look at a relationship with Christ as something that's for women and children and not for men. And that's partly how we wound up in the society that we wound up in. So that would probably be enough for one day all by itself, right? But we're not done, because there's something more important to say about this proverb. I also wanted to say that I saw an interesting quote about the book of Proverbs, and the author said that Proverbs is not a how-to book, it's a how-to-be book. Which means, we talk about having to give your heart. It's not gonna tell you step-by-step how to do that. It's gonna tell you the person that you need to be in order to make that stuff happen. So, it's a book of wisdom and principles, Proverbs is. But if we only look at it as a book of wisdom, we're missing something important. We're missing the big picture. Because after all, there's a lot of different religious traditions that have wisdom books. Even Norse pagan, heathen religions have books of wisdom that are similar to Proverbs. So what makes our book of Proverbs different? What makes Proverbs as part of the canon of scripture, different, is that the entire Bible ultimately points to Jesus. Proverbs is no exception. Now, if you were just to pick up your Bible and start reading Proverbs, sometimes this can be hard to see, because it does. It looks like just a book of advice, just a book of wisdom, Um, and, and really, if you look at the surface meaning, and we're just reading an English translation of something written in Hebrew, It can be hard to find Jesus. But this idea of truly giving one's heart, as important as it is where your family's concerned, there's another way where it's even more important. And this is where we bring it all around for everyone. So I want to start by asking you a question. To what have you given your heart? And I don't want you to take the question lightly and I don't want you to just give the church answer that we want to hear. The question is important, and your answer to it is important too. Scripture reminds us that our heart cannot be divided. Mark 3:24 says, "If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand." Matthew 6:24 says, "No one can serve two masters." for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And 1 John 2, 15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So I ask you this again, to what have you given your heart? And as you reflect on the question, Remember the words of Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is deceitful above all things. And given that the heart is deceitful and wants to lead us astray, how can you answer this question honestly? You can do it by looking objectively at your life. And I have three questions that can help you pinpoint this truth. The three questions are these. To what do I give my time? To what do I give my money? And to what do I give my attention? I know you've heard somebody say before where your treasure is, there your heart will be. But all these other things show you where your heart is too. Where you spend your time, where you spend your money, what you spend your time looking at or thinking about will show you where your heart is. So we don't have to go into detail on every single one of these things because that would just be insulting to your intelligence. These are easy questions to understand. So we're not gonna do that. So what you can do when you think about these things later, which I hope you do, is put the answer in one of two categories. Does this item that you give your time, money, or attention to fall into the category of Jesus? Or does it fall into the category of the world? And this isn't to say that you can't have hobbies or you can't do things that you enjoy. But if you make this list, take a look at how it's weighted. Does it lean to one side or the other, or does it completely tip over? And then you have to think about it from the perspective of giving your heart to your family. If you have too many things to which you give your time, money, and attention, then you're not gonna have enough of your heart left over to give to your family, to the ones that you say you love. And if that's the case, it's time to rebalance that scale. You can't serve two masters. A kingdom divided against itself will not stand. But now I wanna tell you something that's gonna sound like it contradicts everything that I just said, right? There is one place that you can fully give your heart that will actually increase your capacity to give your heart to your family. And I wanna read what the Puritan author, Charles Bridges, had to say about Proverbs 23, 26. That's the one we're looking at today in case you forgot. This is a long quote, but it's so good that I'm gonna read it all, and we're gonna put it up on the screen so you can read along. So Charles Bridges says this. Solomon here manifestly rises above himself and speaks in the name and person of divine wisdom. For who else could claim the gift of the heart, the work of his own hands, the purchase of his blood? My son. Such is the relationship which God acknowledges including every blessing which he can give and all the obedience he can claim. No obedience can be without the believing and practical acknowledgement of this relation, my son, not a stranger, not an enemy, not a slave, but a son, invited to return. An amnesty of the past, a perpetual jubilee of joy awaits thee at thy father's house. Many are the claimants for the heart. Heaven and hell contend for it, The world, with its riches, honors, and pleasures, and science, with its more plausible charms, cries, give me thine heart. Nay, even Satan dares to put in a loud and urgent plea. If thou wilt worship me, all shall be thine. The loving Father calls, my son, give me thine heart. The answer too often is, I have no heart for God. It is engaged to the world. I cannot make up my mind to be religious, at least not yet. And so, even where there is no wickedness, nay, perhaps even some plausible semblance of piety, the darling is given to the lion, the heart to the murderer. Not one is naturally ready with the gift to him alone who deserves it. A few only hearken in a moment of conviction, and then, not till they have proved to their cost the falsehood and disappointment of all other claimants. Some people want to try out the things of the world before they think they'll fully give their heart to God, right? Like, well, I need to have this experience or I need to do that. If I start to live as a Christian, I'll take away all these things and that's not the right way to look at this. Beloved, you must give your heart fully to God. You can't just go through the motions. You can't just play church. You can't just show up here and warm a seat and think that you've done your job because that does not necessarily mean that you've given your heart fully to God. You can't do this and then go out and indulge everything that the world has to offer the rest of the week. That's not what's commanded of us in scripture. But why is this important? This is important because hell is real. Hell is a real place. And not only that, hell is your ultimate destination if you don't surrender your heart fully to God. And that's not me saying it. Jesus himself tells us this in Matthew 7, 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. But he gets more graphic than that. He goes on in verses 22 and 23 to say, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And this is shocking because the people that he was talking to were some of the most quote-unquote upstanding religious people of their day. These are the people that everyone looked at and said, there is no way that we can be as holy as they are. Look at what they do. On the surface, it looks like they've dedicated their lives to God. But they've given their behavior to God. They were known for piety. But they hadn't given their hearts to God. So, you might ask this question Why should I give my heart to God? At this point, I hope you wouldn't ask that question, but just in case you did ask that question, my answer is that God has given everything to you, to everyone here. Beloved, you and I are sinners. No matter how good we think we are, no matter what we think we've done, no matter what mighty works we've done in the name of God, not a single bit of that is sufficient for us to earn our salvation. Romans 3.32 tells us that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 tell us exactly our condition. Paul writes this to the church at Ephesus, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But thankfully, that's not where the story ends. Paul continues in verses four through 10. But God And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A lot of us know Romans 5, 8. Paul reminds us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because we deserved it. Nope. But Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 explains it. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, chose us, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. That means by grace, you have been saved by faith. So, understanding that, or at least hearing it, how do we demonstrate that faith? How do we give our heart or even start to give our heart fully to God. I'm gonna give you three ways. And the first two, you already know. You probably know the other ones too. The first two are easy and basic. I see they're already up on the screen. The last one's a little more challenging. But here are the first two. Read your Bible and pray to God. Everyone wants a word from God. God speaks to us through scripture. He speaks to us through the Bible that he has given us. And prayer is our opportunity to speak to him. There's one other way that's more complicated, but also essential. We're gonna look at Acts 2 real quick. Peter has just finished preaching here. This is what's going on. So we're gonna pick it up in verse 37. He shared the gospel. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So the third way to give your heart fully to God, and if you don't do this, The other things things are for nothing. It's to repent. Repent of sin. Jesus' blood on the cross was sufficient to cover all of your sin. But at the same time, we have to turn away from that sin. And we probably all have big sins or some kind of sin that we have turned away from. While at the same time, having small sins, if you can call them small, that we still hold on to, things that we still have in our life, things that we might argue are not really a sin because we wanna keep doing them. We have to turn away from all those things to give your heart fully to God. You cannot come before the God that we mentioned who is holy while holding on to some kind of sin in your heart. One of the first things that Jesus said when he started his ministry was this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Read, pray, and repent. First John 1, nine tells us this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Beloved, the heart is the center of all things. And just like Solomon speaking these words of wisdom to his son, God demands nothing less of us than our full devotion, our entire heart. So have you given him your heart?